1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is <laughs> Does my hair look okay? My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Yes, there, there we, we go. go. Working well. Welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Uh, I'm drinking coffee. It's five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um... I've, I'm still sweating because it's Mississippi right now, and Mississippi in August is, it's it's dark outside. It's probably 92 degrees F, uh, so it's probably 33, 34, and um, about 90% humidity. And it just rained, so it just like staggered up more humidity. So I'm still sweating. Uh, but you are definitely not drinking coffee right now. No, I'm not. I'm having a glass of red wine, and it's, uh, what, about... Quarter past eight at night here, uh, dark as well. Uh, for here, it's relatively cool. It's nice. So it's probably... Uh, and where, where is here? So here is in far north Queensland. So um, Mena Creek, which is a, uh, a little town probably an hour and a half south of Cairns, uh, which most people probably know. Uh, just for everyone's edification, probably nobody knows what Queensland is or Cairns <laughs> is. Well, if, uh, if you look at a big map of Australia, we're on the east coast and we're up the top. Uh, there we way. go. Yeah. Good deal. Good deal. Well, Nathan Ravenscroft, welcome again. Uh, Thanks give us a little me. introduction to who you are. Yeah. So, uh, Nathan Ravenscroft, I, uh, I run a business called Feral Vertebrate Reduction Contracting. So, uh, my primary business is conservation and land management in initiatives, primarily dealing with vertebrate pests uh, through a range of different, uh, different means. Um, and primarily related to conservation, so uh, focused on endangered and threatened species, and uh, then the programs that run to uh, assist those species and remove some of the feral pests that directly impact them. Uh, aside from that side of things, uh, I'm a passionate uh, hunter in my own time as well. I enjoy spearfishing, 
uh, rifle hunting, used to be right into bow hunting, all sorts of firearms pursuits, including pistol shooting. Uh, so, yeah, right into the, uh, the whole side of things personally and professionally. I'm telling you what, you are one of my favorite people to follow. Because if you know how you have people ask you, like, what would you do if you weren't doing what you do? Now, I'm in the environmental consulting business. Obviously, I have a passion project called Blood Origins. But if I could do something else, I would do what you do. Like, to me, the idea of being now, obviously, it sounds glamorous and whatnot, and every job has its shit moments, right? But the fact that you are paid to enhance environments by removing feral pest invasive species to make the environment better, I, I, I can't think of a better job. Oh, and you get to shoot lots of beautiful weapons out of helicopters and go on beaches and shoot things at night with thermal. Did I capture it about right, Nathan? Yeah, look, uh, I think you've captured the shiny side rather nicely. It, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you're right, it, it, it does sound good. Uh, I forget to say that you are working at all hours of the night and day, and uh, especially the ones, we'll get into it, obviously, there's lots of things that we want to talk about. But yeah, definitely the shiny part, I just, but that's really, your your job is to remove feral pest animals and for those that don't know, Australia is like, I would, you could almost argue it's the bastion of feral pest species in the world. Yeah, yeah, one, certainly uh, one of those countries that's heavily impacted by a, a broad range of feral pests that uh, have a broad range of impacts. So, you know, certainly I'm focused on the conservation side of that. But, you know, if you look at our agricultural sector, conservation, uh, biodiversity, biosecurity, there's a broad range of uh, impacts from these animals, and they're, yeah, they're all introduced. So, uh, and that one of the worst things about Australia, like everyone likes to think that our, our country's full of uh, dangerous animals, and we've got a few, you know, snakes and crocodiles go all right. But in the big scheme of things, our smaller marsupial species, um, they're, they're really quite uh, indefensible against a lot of these feral predators, and particularly animals like cats and dogs. Um, they just have no defence mechanism, and unfortunately, um, our uh, biodiversity in this country suffers very, very heavily as a direct result of uh, feral pests, which are you know, out there for a broad range of reasons. But you know, they've, they've been here for years. They're, they're entrenched, and uh, we're, we're losing hundreds of species. You know, it's, it's amazing. So, one of, so some of your clients are private individuals that and maybe, and again, I don't know if you can talk about this. I don't know if you can. Um, you just tell me, okay? I, I'm almost interested in the why. Why would a private individual with private land be interested in hiring you, wherein maybe the activities that they're partaking in on that on that land, really, who cares, right? Who cares if there's feral animals? It doesn't really make a difference to what I'm trying to do with the land. Yet they hire you to take care of it to improve the environment. Yeah. Why? Well, it I, makes no sense. Makes a lot of sense. Some people have a conscience, and uh, you know they. Oh, that's that funny thing that uh, that funny thing that we seem to have lost in society. We do. Some uh, some people still have a conscience, and they have integrity, and they uh, they like to see a situation improved. And I guess uh, that's one of the the benefits of uh, someone like me getting a phone call is that 
I'll, I'll come at that from a slightly different angle than a lot of uh, other people who would be engaged. And typically in Australia, that would be recreational shooters. And look, I, I think they have a a really important place um, in terms of um, assisting with feral pests and you know, game management and, and hunting in general. But Agreed. Um, when there's a requirement um, to, to solve a problem as opposed to just positively impacting it um, at, at certain times, um, that's generally when I get a call or when the problem's gotten to a stage where um, you know, other methodology isn't really uh, effective and they just need someone who's going to come at it uh, for days and potentially weeks at a time, 24-7, using the highest tech gear um, and a broad range of techniques. That's, that's generally where I come in. Um, and so you know, certainly there, there is that, that type of client where they have a uh, conscience, they care about the environment, they want to see improvement on their land. And, and most landowners are like that. Um, I own land uh, myself and I'm very conscious of the, the feral pests, the weeds, uh, you know, the invasives and those sorts of things, and I manage them accordingly. Um, but you also have a broad range of corporate and government clients. So um, in the corporate space, uh, there's a lot of companies out there that are um, you know, profiting from their activities on the land. And whilst they're doing that, they mm -hmm. have direct governmental requirements to achieve offset, which is uh, positive environmental uh, impact. Uh, to directly uh, justify the other impacts that they're having on the landscape. And uh, I get engaged quite regularly in that space. Fantastic. Fantastic. Let's, um, if, if I, what I'd like to do is just almost run down the list of things that you tackle. The, 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 the feral invasive species, and we'll just go from the top to the bottom. And maybe what we should do is uh, let's list them in priority. Now, that's going to be probably a little difficult and challenging, but I did see a post that you posted the other day from the Shooters Union of Australia, which is a phenomenal little piece. And yeah. I'm going to steal it, by the way. Please do. In terms of using it for a proof. Um, so I'm interested to understand, in terms of the things that you go after, now, obviously, you are limited in terms of where you go after them in northern Queensland, and so you don't typically have all of the invasive species. You're not dealing with donkeys and camels and That's right, all yeah. the other stuff that the rest of Australia is dealing with. So let's just, we're going to be localized. And so we're putting a caveat here to what Nathan's about to say, that uh, so that you don't get reamed across the coals by a bunch of other Australians saying, oh, there's a, there's a bigger problem than that. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but let's start. Number one, the number one most invasive species that you deal with so no, number one is quite topical um, and, and it comes down to how you rate what number one would be according to where you sit um, in, in the big scheme of things. And I guess from my perspective, um, being a primarily conservation land management focus and with a big emphasis on the conservation part, um, I'd have to say feral cats uh, without a doubt. Um, they have. Ooh, Nathan, you didn't just say cats. I Come on, I did say cats. Those, those cuddly, furry things. Those cuddly, furry things that we like to have in our houses—they're not a problem. Those cuddly, furry biodiversity nightmares that uh, have more mechanisms to destroy native wildlife than any other animal out there. Absolutely, I said that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. They, uh, without a doubt, um, you know, yeah, they. Uh, Financial impact, conservation impact, um, biodiversity impact in terms of all the species they remove and the ecosystems that they directly upset through uh, engaging at inappropriate places within the food cycle. Um, yeah, massive impact. Uh, and across Australia too. So Let's sort of dissect the impact. Um, what sure. are they typically hammering in Australia? 
Well, th this is the key problem with a feral cat. So a feral cat uh, doesn't have a typical food source. They can engage any food source. Uh, and because they are such an efficient and effective predator, they don't tend to scavenge, so they tend to kill live prey uh, at all times. So they have a massive impact on all Australian uh, bird species. Uh, they impact our um, lizards, our amphibians, our small mammals. Uh, all of our marsupial species, up to and including wallaby-sized animals, are impacted by feral cats. Uh, and that's just on the predation side of things without even considering the perspective of disease factor. Uh, and the issues they cause there in terms of their ability to, to carry disease and then transmit across multiple environments. One of, the, one of the key challenges with the feral cat is they're highly mobile. Uh, they can climb, they can jump, um, they can operate in all environments, whereas most of our uh, native animals only have a, a set amount of defence mechanisms only to cater against those, um, you know, those animals that are there traditionally would be engaged in that are native predators, things like quolls and, and or birds or, or whatever, and the, the cat mm -hmm. just defeats mm -hmm. all of that. So, yeah, and they, they're widespread. They're throughout Australia. So there's no home range for feral cats. They're everywhere. Yeah, I think what's interesting, two things I want to point out. Number one is, you're right, they're not scavengers. No. And the fact that they are not scavengers, that they utilize uh, and go after live prey, makes them so effective essentially as a a feral predator and i think that's another thing I, and I, that just popped into my brain you when you talk about feral species invasive species very often they're very much lower down in the trophic in the in the sort of food chain in the trophic pyramid essentially you don't often see a feral invasive that sits at the top in the predator spot that's right yeah um, the other thing that you mentioned, which is interesting, is that they, they work in the three dimension. They don't just work in the, the horizontal and um, sort of left and right kind of thing. As you said, they can climb trees, um, which, again, makes it that much more effective. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, no, they, uh, they certainly represent the, um, the greatest threat to uh, endemic species in Australia out of any of our uh, feral species here, I would say. Would you say that, obviously, what's the biggest cat you've ever seen? Like feral cat taken out. What are we talking? Four kilos, five kilos? Uh, I've, I've seen uh, feral cats here reach over 10 kilos. Um, and I, I believe there was one animal that uh, was destroyed a couple of years ago up in Cape York. Um, I didn't have any weights or scales on me, but I, I think he would have gone around 12 kilos. Is uh, an amazing sized animal. We're talking that's twenty four pounds, twenty five pound animal. We're talking bigger than a medium sized dog, yeah. Yep, definitely. Wow. Yeah, so I've, I've got border collies, so and they're yeah, bigger than that. Shit. Yeah. The um, how do we how how do you tackle something like that? Obviously, they don't pack up like pigs. They don't. They seem to be. You would think they were pretty solitary. Um, gosh, such a hard animal to make an, a dent in, right, to put an impact onto. So what are the techniques and challenges there? There's a broad range of techniques and challenges with cats. So um, cats and the way they work are, are very um, different depending on the environment that they're in. Um, so whether it's uh, eucalypt forest, desert, uh, coastal fringe, any of the different types of country that are out there, mountain range, whatever, they act differently in those environments. And I think that the key challenge that everyone struggles with when, when they're conducting feral cat control is that cats, unlike other species, when a cat's not active uh, and it's not in its active hunting cycle, it's not mating, it's not moving, it's not doing something that's visible, it's literally curled up in a rock, 
uh, sorry, a, a rock pile, logs, um, or in a tree stump or, or something that's not visible. Whereas a lot of our other feral predators or feral animals, regardless of what cycle they're in, uh, they're still visible, whereas a cat is not visible. So mm-hmm. the, the key issue with uh, feral cat management is identifying when they're active uh, and then targeting when they're active. And generally that's based on solar and lunar cycles. Uh, so level of illumination uh, and the peak activity periods that exist on a day-to-day basis, which I don't know if you, you've used the old uh, fishing almanacs, but uh, cats operate on a very yeah, yeah. yeah very similar cycle to that. So you can uh, essentially use that type of data to assist in identifying when cats are going to be active, and then you correlate that over the certain terrain type um, where the cats are going to be moving in terms of uh, the track systems, uh, any fire frontages, that type of thing, um, and that'll uh, help you understand where those animals are going to be. So what would be what would you look for? Would you look for a waning moon, a waxing moon? What are you looking for? So generally speaking on a cat, um, the activity cycle varies over a monthly period based on the solar and lunar conditions, and that can vary every day. But typically there's two, within a month-long period, there's two peaks, and that'll be around the new moon uh, and the uh, full moon. And then there's a couple of smaller peaks on the internal, so about halfway through that cycle. So with cats, they're active on both the full moon uh, and the dark moon. Uh, but from a targeting perspective, they're very, very difficult to target given their exceptional eyesight on a full moon. So generally speaking, you try and target cats on dark nights uh, against the uh, activity peaks. And uh, then it's a, a matter of uh, utilising uh, specialist optics to get in close. So the, simply the best way of doing cat work is to pick them up with white light given their immense eye signature. Uh, and then as soon as you have eye signature, to switch over to thermal and uh, then stalk in with thermal and shoot them at close range in cover uh, is normally how it goes. So would you prioritize in your in your work cycle, mm-hmm. you'll look at your month cycle and go, okay, this period of time, I'm focusing on feral cats. Like that's the time I have to, that's the only time I, I'm going to make my, you know, the best impact I could possibly make. And in I go, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to spend the whole night, essentially. And this is not the shiny side of what you do, right? It's you spend it, you're literally up all night because it's the only time, it's the best time that you can take out as much as you possibly can take out. 100%. So uh, when, when you're on the ground and you're doing this professionally, the client wants you out there, whether it's raining, whether it's hailing, whether you're in a thunderstorm, you know, whether it's perfect, uh, they don't really care about the conditions. They just care about the results. And Ultimately, uh, I'm in a fortunate position now, having been doing this for a little while, where my clients trust the um, (coughs) recommendations that I'm making. So generally speaking, that's exactly right. I'll schedule according to the species. So pigs and cats are fairly well offset in terms of um, when they're going to be active on the environment. And so you can use that data um, to target um, different different animals uh, in different regions, depending exactly what the programs require and, and why you're there. But Every program's a little bit different. I guess that's one of the differences with what I do compared to what some of the uh, the guys who are a little bit more agricultural focused might do. Uh, is that mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm very niche focused. Um, I, I don't like to say that I'm too much about the science behind it because reality is this is still practitioner work, and you know, it is about mm-hmm. you know just doing the time and, and being out there with the right tech in the right place at the right time. But um, yeah, I certainly add as much science to it as I can in terms of understanding exactly what's happening for that particular environment and that particular uh, terrain type. So let's just stay. I want to stay on the feral cats just a little bit longer. Um, get your you receive your a fair bit of hate um, based on what you do, or <laughs> pretty much stay below the radar. <laughs> I, 
it, it's funny. It uh, there's been a little bit of hope, uh, but only related to cats. Um, and uh, there's a certain cadre of individual out there who uh, obviously obviously cat, and I appreciate uh, that. And they're probably wonderful cat owners, but they certainly don't understand right. the uh, the dynamic uh, with regards to how that applies in the Australian native bush. Uh, much in the same, I imagine, uh, having been to Africa myself as well, um, that many people uh, in the US or Europe perhaps don't understand the African dynamic and what, sure, uh, sure, you know, uh, you know what the uh, requirements are there in terms of meat gathering and um, you know the benefits to the community of those hunting activities. Um, certainly, there is a little bit of that here too. What do you think about the whole catch, neuter, replace rubbish? <laughs> that's the uh, it's the most ridiculous concept because- I've ever heard. Just so that for, for for people who you know are like, well, that's you know that's a better management technique. It's non-lethal. You know, you take care of the the reproductive success of that animal. There's, there can't be what's you know. Obviously, I know what's wrong with that. But for everyone's edification, Look, why without, is it rubbish, Nathan? So, without putting too fine a point on it, the uh, the primary issue with the feral cat is that they're not mating with the native species. They're eating them. So, unless we're going to remove their teeth and turn them into vegans. Uh, that whole process isn't going to work because they're still going to, you know, you're going to need them. You just, you just, that's a gold mine. Right there. <laughs> hey, maybe we've got a little joint industry we can get into here. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Turn feral cats into vegans. Yeah. Gosh, we're going to get a bunch of hate because of this. It's okay. No, we've got it coming. It's fair. <laughs> so let me ask this. This is, and this is a more serious question. Sure. Do you think we'll ever get past the point? My answer to what I'm about to say is I don't think so because of the because of the fact that cats are so in in sort of indelibly built into human urban societal norms of sort of the cuddly furry this is my pet uh, kind of scenario same situation with feral dogs um, do you think we'll ever get to a point where people can really understand the need? Uh, y- yes and no. Look, I, I think that that's an interesting question, and it raises a point that a lot of people um, don't really understand with the Australian dynamic, which is that when we talk about feral cats, uh, in particular, and, and and dogs to an extent, but uh, particularly with uh, with cats, what we're not really what we're not saying is that uh, we have domestic cats who are going wild into the bush and they're scavenging and and killing our native animals, and that's what the problem is. Uh, there is an element of that, but that's not the, the key focus of what feral cat management is about. The feral cats uh, in most environments are actually generations wild. Uh, they've been bred out there for years. They, they don't have human interaction. They are a completely, or a, they look the same, but they act in a fundamentally different way to a domestic cat. Um, and one of the issues with cats in particular is that they revert back to that native status uh, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as soon as you put them on a better food source that's protein-rich, they get bigger, they get faster, they get stronger. Uh, and all of a sudden, that's why we have this issue of um, you know, very, very effective apex predators operating on the landscape, keeping in mind, too, that Australia doesn't have a lot of big native predators. We've pretty much, you know, a feral cat can take care of itself against most things, probably with the exception of the wild dogs that are out there. And, that, again, that's a whole different topic, um, although a mm-hmm. fairly similar dynamic. Okay. Number two most invasive species that you deal with number two is a tough one um and i guess it depends on your industry sector and i'm gonna disagree with uh what was in that uh uh, graphic i posted the other day but uh, i'd have to say Mm -hmm. feral pigs 
Um, well, especially where you are, right? That's almost the bastion of feral pigs in, in Australia, right? Uh, one of them, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a few key areas where there's really heavy impact, but I think um, one of the key issues with feral pigs, much like feral cats, is that the impact um, is broad-reaching uh, and it's not necessarily uh, just about one particular issue. So feral pigs uh, cause problems with predation on native animals. That certainly occurs. Um, they are a massive risk in terms of uh, disease vector uh, from a biodiversity uh, and biosecurity point of view. So they, they can transmit disease to livestock very easily. Um, they transmit weeds very easily because they have quite a, a coarse fur um, throughout their system. They pick up a lot of the uh, invasive weeds that we have here and spread them regularly. That's on top of the digging that they do. So a lot of the um, weeds we have around the place, particularly in northern Australia, uh, require effective digging to germinate and um, feral pigs obviously dig up a lot. So um, they do uh, really uh, heavily contribute to weed spread uh, throughout our environment, which is a massive issue. And if you're going to be honest, it's it's got to be right up there and probably more of an issue than feral animal management actually is in most areas. Um, let alone the other environmental impacts they have. So they, they cause a lot of issues in terms of silting up waterways, uh, in terms of degrading uh, water lines, general edges, uh, impacting nesting water birds, amphibians, you know, all those sorts of issues as well. Then if you just park all of those conservation matters and then have a look at the agricultural sector, um, aside from the disease side of things, you know, there's the actual predation that occurs, particularly down in sheep country and those sorts of areas. So a lot of pigs do directly impact uh, livestock, um, yeah, and competition with food, wrecking pasture, all those types of issues as well. So, yeah, no, they're, they're a pretty significant issue. And then you've got one other added element up in the north, which I am absolutely, completely fascinated about. Sure. Which is pigs on beaches. Pigs on beaches. And what are they going after, Nathan? Well, it's the uh, it's my key topical issue. Um, they're they're ruining our um, uh, nesting sea turtle rookeries up in the uh, the north of Australia. So, feral feral pigs are a very very adaptive and intelligent animal, and uh, it's to their credit and it's it's to our downfall in terms of our native species. But um, our nesting sea turtles are an amazing animal, and they, they're basically the uh, amphibian of the marine world in terms of being a barometer for the overall health of a marine ecosystem. Um, and you know, we, we certainly need turtles out there doing all the good things they do uh, for the environment. And sea turtles have always had a significant issue with uh, predation and egg loss um, when they uh, they come in a nest, and that. And sure. that Part of that's normal cycle, so things like goannas, yep, yep. You know, maybe the uh, the temperatures were wrong or they nested in the wrong side or you know, those types of things. But mm -hmm. if you overlay that with uh, nest predation from feral species, uh, particularly feral species like uh, large mature feral pigs who are very, very adapted to digging appropriately and then consuming entire nests, uh, it, it almost makes their population untenable uh, in the long term. So that, that issue's been... Um, yeah, well recognised in Australia for a number of years, and there's a there's a broad range of programs in place to assist in dealing with that. And that's one of the key issues um, that I get involved in. So, uh, from a macro perspective, uh, one of the things we do in the north is uh, very heavy aerial culling uh, in our coastal regions uh, to control overall pig populations. And pig populations are a challenge, as I said, because they're they're mobile, they're adaptive, they can use mul multiple food sources. 
And to directly impact a feral pig population, you have to kill 70% of that population three years in a row. So, uh, and then from that point on, then you have to maintain that level of control over the top. Otherwise, it just builds back up. Um, But if you want enduring Mm -hmm. effect, that's that's your um, metric. So, the aerial culling that's been occurring through Indigenous range groups and 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 other groups up in the, the areas that I've been operating in has been very effective over the years, but it hasn't necessarily 100% catered to the whole issue. Uh, and one of those key issues is that um, one mature boar um, can come out on a beach and that uh, highly educated and adaptive animal who is highly mobile and might weigh up around anywhere between 90 to 140 kilos uh, he might cover 10, 11 k's of beach per night and he'll eat every single nest he comes across. Um, so they're, they're very, very effective in terms of their ability to detect where turtles have nested and then they're uh, awesomely effective at digging them. And obviously, given their weight and high-protein requirements, they're very effective at predating the whole lot. Um, mm-hmm. So we've adapted some of our methodology um, up in the north to deal with that particular problem. And fortunately for me, that uh, a lot of the time means travelling on the beaches all night uh, in an ATV running thermal equipment, uh, identifying those animals, working out where the wind's coming from and then moving it on foot and humanely destroying them. So, uh, yeah, pretty meaningful work. Yeah, so I think if, if I did my research correctly, I think all seven endangered sea turtles nest on the northern beaches of 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 Queensland. Yeah. And so it's important... Obviously, nesting grounds are important to the global biodiversity, global population status of these seven uh, sea turtle species. Absolutely, yeah. So, I'm, I'm fascinated. What I, I did a little bit of digging. Do you think that um, I read that the people believe that these pigs that typically are attacking sea turtle nests, it's a learnt behaviour, and almost gets. Um, you know, passed down from generation to generation. As you said, you've got these pockets potentially of pigs that just through time understand exactly what's happening and when the food sources will, will be there and come out and take them out. Yeah, that's right. It um, it certainly is a learned behaviour and it can be learned a number of ways. Um, so a previously uneducated pig working on its own can, can learn that, that that's a food source and that usually comes about through something along the lines of uh, the the normal uh, natural predation that occurs through goannas and and those types of predators on the beach. So a goanna will come in, dig up a nest, um, predate an element of it, and then leaves a a bunch of egg exposed and obviously all that turtle smell, et cetera, where it's dug. And then your pig comes through, smells that, um, has a bit of a sniff around, identifies that as a food source, and then becomes educated from that point forward. Um, and then once they realise that mm-hmm. exactly the zone that turtles nest in, which is pretty consistently um, just on the dry sand above the high tide mark, uh, then all of a sudden you've got you've got a fairly significant issue because now you've got a highly mobile predator with a significant ability to consume. Um, so that's one way that happens. Um, the other thing about pigs, which is really really interesting, and I, I don't think even after years of controlling these, pests, how do you think that they're detecting the nests? Do you think that they're smelling them through the sand? Yeah. Yep. So there's a broad range of signature with turtle nests, okay. but it's predominantly smell. Um, so uh, I'm okay. not a lot of data on it. I'm, I'm confident they would also be um, viewing where the turtles come up because uh, turtles are ob- you know, very obvious on a beach with, uh, with how they're working. But uh, yeah, predominantly smell is the, uh, is the main issue. Okay. Yeah. It's fascinating, man. I'm telling you, that's one of the things I think I've told you before. Um, 
one of the first documentaries I want to talk, I want to tell in Australia is the role that hunters, hunting, removal of these invasive species has on sea turtles. Yeah. Um, I think it's a fascinating story. I think it's something that, you know, I think your private clients would be like, hell yeah, we want to tell that story. We want to, you know, we're doing all this good work and um, we want to, you know, let people know that we're doing this good work, especially yeah. on a, a charismatic animal like a sea turtle. That's right. And it's just, I think people just are going to get their mind blown that you have this interaction between pigs and sea turtles. Yeah. And I think it's just this sort of romantic idea that, you know, hey, you could be hunting in an area and hunt and take out pigs. And, you know, this idea that hunting is conservation, right? It's, it's a very tenuous term because typically there is no direct link. Typically, it's a multi-linked multi cycle between hunting on the right and conservation on the left. And the, it, the, there's really no direct impact, except when you're going after invasive species. Yeah. And that then there is a direct link because you are taking that animal out. And in this circumstance, you're taking a, a potential nest raider out. And you know, you just had a monstrous impact. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and I think that's the the key issue. It's uh, it is a known impact. If you're if you're uh, in the process of destroying large mature feral pigs that are actively walking on the edge of the beach, they're only there for one reason. There's there's only one food source that they're targeting. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the mobs will come out and they'll they'll certainly uh, sniff around seaweed in some of those remote areas. They might try and dig up a crab here and there. Um, yeah, and a little bit of digging, but you can tell when it's nest predation. The digging's different. The way they move is different. Um, you know, they, they will move at high speed along the, uh, on the hard sand on the, the high tide mark where it's easier to transit uh, until they get to the point where they, they smell, you know, potential food and then you can see them start meandering from that point on. And, uh, you know, that's, we, we spend hours and hours every night reading that sign, uh, working out where those animals are moving, understanding where they're coming out of the bush, where they're going back into the bush. And as soon as we identify that we have an animal that appears to be habituated, uh, we will literally spend nights in that location until we get it. Um, you know, we, we might spend, mm -hmm. you know, they, they become 14-hour days and you get quite obsessed about it because, you know, it is, you know, I, it, to me it's mission failure when you come across a turtle nest that has been predated. Uh, you know, it's very, very frustrating. Uh, and, you know, there's a, there's a professional aspect uh, to this and it's, you know, it's not token conservation. This is real conservation. And when you don't get it right, you see the impact straight away. So, um, yeah, no, it's... Uh, it certainly invokes passion uh, and evokes a bit of pride in the work too, you know, uh, seeing the direct results. And mm -hmm. uh, one client in particular um, up in uh, Western Cape York that I, uh, I do a lot of work for um, does some very heavy monitoring up there. And we noticed uh, over a 12, 12 month to 24 month period, a thousand percent increase in turtle hatchlings as a result of the anti nest predation program that we're running. Wow. It's insane. So, yeah. Well, you need to send us that data. We'll, we'll build an infographic. Yeah, uh, I really would. That would be an awesome thing. Build an infographic because you probably have the data of how many pigs were taken. Yeah, and you've got obviously the monitoring data pre and and after, and yep. uh, show the impact of of sea turtle hatchlings on it. Yeah, that'd be. It's exactly right, man. It's not token conservation. Yeah, it's, it's real. It's hands on. It's hands on, and that and it's funny you say that because I guess in my brain I had this idea 
you've sort of switched my brain around in terms of I had this vision of mobs of pigs coming on the beach yep. and taking care of. But um, as you say, it's just these one, one or two very educated, very learned pigs that just figure out exactly what it is, how they would need to do it. And then it's sort of, as you said, mission focused to find that one animal. That's it. Yep. And take them out. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think there's a perception out there about what professional control is. And a lot of people think that, oh, you're a professional controller, so you got all the high tech gear. You're out there, you know, you're in a vehicle, you're in an ATV, you're just driving around until you detect something kilometers away and then you go and blow it away. Uh, that is you not. Just mow them down. That's all you're doing. You're just riding along and just shooting out your vehicle and killing everything that you can see, right? Yeah, that's right. That's, well, that's what people think. And the reality is um, we're hunting uh, in the traditional way you would hunt using all those skills that you learnt from, you know, when you were a young uh, person up until now, uh, including how to track, how to read sign, how to understand the wind and the wind's effects on the particular game species. Uh, and then uh, for, honestly, 95-plus percent of these animals that we deal with, whether it's whatever the species is, you're on foot. You know, uh, you might detect them using high-tech gear from a vehicle, but uh, then it turns very quickly into utilising the things that you know about that species in that environment uh, on foot to, to track them down. And that, that's been quite awkward for some clients because they, uh, they certainly did have those perceptions, particularly around workplace health and safety and, uh, and those sorts of issues. Um, you know, and I, I had some very interesting discussions you know, uh, around you know, things like, so it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you're going to hop out of your vehicle with a, with a white light on and then go and walk in and destroy these frail animals. And uh, No, not at all. Uh, first of all, I won't be in a vehicle. Second of all, there'll be no white light. Uh, third of all, I'll be reliant predominantly on my ears to identify where the animal's moving uh, once I've detected it through heavy cover, utilising thermal equipment, etc. Uh, and then I may track the thing for anywhere from, you know, in a, on a good night, you know, 100 metres. On a bad night with a feral cat on a track, I might walk after it for 2Ks before I get a shot. Uh, that's just how it goes. Uh, and then I'll call someone on radio and get them to come pick me up. Uh, and that makes a few people uncomfortable, but uh, it's effective and that's why we do it. So, yeah. Why would your clients get uncomfortable with that? Just because of the risk? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a corporate space. So uh, I guess it's the same uh, everywhere now. You know, everyone wants a you know, uh, safety analysis done or a risk management plan or you know, take fives to talk about how we're doing, why we're doing it. Uh, and I think it's it's very amusing uh, in my dynamic as a professional controller with all the licensing, et cetera, that comes with that. Um, when they eventually get down to the, the grass tacks of what we're doing out in the field, which is uh, I've got the wind in my face, I'm carrying a firearm, and then I'm going to chase an animal down. And uh, uh, unlike uh, a person uh, in uh, other environments, I don't I have a physical obligation to close with and humanely destroy that animal regardless of the conditions. So that means... There is a little degree of acceptance of personal risk, uh, but that's what the job is. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we, uh, we mm-hmm. do it and we do it very ethically. Mm-hmm. Is there a third invasive species on the list up there? Look, uh, there's, there's many species we could talk about uh, because Australia is full of them. So we could talk about rabbits, we could of talk course, about foxes, wild dogs. Um, yep. It depends how topical you want to get. I think. Look, you've uh, hit you've hit the two main ones, right? These are like the two monstrous ones. Feral cats and pigs. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we have. And look, it, it, I could reel off the the full list of Australian animals or feral animals that impact us. But you know, um, 
you know, there's a lot of animals out there that people get uncomfortable about. Um, feral horses mm-hmm. and brumbies, um, they are a beautiful mm-hmm. animal. Um, you know, no one likes... Well, that's the biggest topic here in the US. You know, wild horses in the West. Yeah. They're eight times overpopulation capacity right now. Yeah. Nobody wants them. The roundups aren't happening anymore. Destroying ecosystems. Absolutely annihilating ecosystems right now. Yeah. But because they're a horse... Yeah. Just like a cat, just like a dog. It's a tough issue. Unlike a pig, unlike a pig. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, and look, it's the same here with uh, with a broad range of those species. Like I think everyone loves a feral pig getting destroyed because it's not pretty. Uh, it smells. Mm-hmm. It's 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 not a nice animal that anyone can associate with. Uh, and providing people do it humanely, no one really has an issue with that. Um, but you're absolutely right. As soon as you get to that uh, demographic of uh, cute, fluffy, domesticated, potentially uh, stock lines or, or things along those lines, and people do start to not necessarily have issues for those who are educated, but uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot less understanding. Hundred percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. Well, um, this has been fascinating, and um, as I said. I, I'm, I guess I'm jealous of the shiny side of the job. I am definitely not jealous of the long nights, all night, no sleep, uh, you know, and coming sometimes empty-handed, right? You just you don't acquire the, 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 the target that you're after. That's right. And uh, super frustrating. Yep, certainly. Is, is, uh, there's nights out there where, you know, we'll do f- – uh, 14 hours from you know, 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon uh, through to 6 o'clock in the morning and uh, not see a single thing, not see a print. Uh, but on, on the same front, you know, the uh, that comes with its own reward because it means you're getting the job right. I um, mean, if they're not there, they're not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and that's positive. But um, That's a good point. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, but uh, no, you're absolutely right. It, uh, people see success. They don't see uh, sitting in the rain <laughs> wishing you weren't there. It happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, as, I, as I started with this coffee, maybe in the future you'll have a much stronger blend of coffee that you can, uh, that you can brew up uh, with called Black Death. I'll tell you what. will help you through those nights. I'm going to hit them up because I've got a, a heap of sandbar sitting here on the shelf at the moment, and I've, uh, I've been getting into that. It's good stuff. But uh, if we can find something stronger, I'm in. Yeah, they're, they're actually, we, um, they sent us a bunch of... Um, of, of test samples yeah. and uh i went through it and we, we decided which which sort of blend we like the most and yeah we've got he's he's working on artwork right now and I, we're trying to get it out before christmas uh so it'll be a good collaboration we'll have this buffalo we'll put a buffalo on it because that's what you know in africa yeah, buffalo is yeah. called black death yep. black death really dark coffee i think it'll work pretty good darker the better yep that's it well nathan you're the man man i know we've been trying to get together for gosh probably a year now and um and and talking about dog and gun they were the people who introduced us that's right uh, yeah. sean down at dog and gun and introduced me to you and um yeah i look forward to you need to come back you need to talk more about this issue um hopefully we can put some sweet documentary footage together once australia decides to open up who knows gosh who knows when australia is going to open up to the world again yeah um, it's, a, it's a big question right now isn't it yep yep yeah. But uh, when it does, 
we'll be there and I will certainly hit you up because I want to come up north and, and see this beautiful landscape that you work in. And oh, it's, um, it's a good thing. And I've, I've actually got uh, one particular client in mind who I've spoken to at length about this and they're, they're keen to have you on board. So they want to showcase the work that's being done uh, and uh, yeah, show that now, the, the real positive benefit of you know um, hunting, whether it's professional hunting, recreational hunting, it, it all has the same uh, end state, which is... Yeah, uh, why would we not? Why do we not celebrate these successes that we have, Nathan? It's almost like we've decided to get into the closet. We do all this great work. It's like, why don't you celebrate? Why don't you show it? And, show, and, and, and look, I know, I understand why. Because typically we show it in a very terrible fashion. Yeah. We don't tell the right story. That's right. That's right. And uh, I think at Blood Origins, we're telling the right story. So we look forward to it, man. Absolutely. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.